0: Hi, my name is Isaac Baden-Floyd, and you're listening to me on Above and Beyond.
1: Hi all, it's Mike Myers with another episode of Above and Beyond. Here by the Reengineering Australia Foundation, where we strive to engage, inspire, and educate students, teachers, and industry about the career pathway options that exist in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We're driving to create the next generation of innovators who will build Australia's economic future. Career decisions and the transition to the world of work exist at the boundary layer between schools and the real world. When it comes to selecting a career, students don't know what they don't know. So it's important to interface students with as many options as possible, increasing the likelihood of sparking a passion, particularly in areas where they may not have had any previous exposure. Career decisions are influenced by knowledge, passion, experience, advice of parents, career advisors, social media. For some, the crack in the footpath they may have tripped over that changed their life career decisions should be driven by the passions and skills of the students, rather than by a somewhat random and last minute decision process. The more assistance we can provide students to limit the number of variables in the decision equation, the more confident the students will be to make decisions that fit with their passions and their skills. There is much research validating the importance of peers and role models in the career decision process. It is important to connect students with people who are not far in front of them in terms of their career journey. People who talk their language. Today I'm talking to a young engineer not far along his career path of undersea exploration. My goal will be to uncover career opportunities which students may have never thought of in the past, at least until today. My guest, Isaac Bowen-Floyd, is currently working as an autonomous underwater vehicle engineer at the Autonomous Marine Systems Laboratory at the Australian Maritime College in Launceston, Tasmania. His scope of work includes conducting research and development and the operations and maintenance of both large AUVs, that's autonomous underwater vehicles, and small remotely operated vehicles, ROVs. Isaac graduated from ocean engineering and has been involved with AUVs for the past eight years, some of which overlapped with his undergraduate course. So welcome Isaac.
0: Thank you Mike. How are you? Yeah well and yourself?
1: No no good. Can you first explain for us what uh, ocean engineering and how it might be different to say naval architecture or other forms of engineering?
0: Sure thing. Ocean engineering, I guess, as it was originally sort of constructed, was designed to educate a, a workforce of people to inject into the offshore oil and gas industry, where it being sort of designing designing offshore oil and gas infrastructure, subsea pipelines, wellheads, as well as coastal infrastructure such as breakwaters and wharves, etc. Although. In the in the past years it's really started to transition because it, it does sort of morph to what the industry needs too. So in the, in the previous years when I was going through the, the course it had started to adopt other technologies such as underwater vehicles and renewable energies into its course um, as well. So I guess it's everything offshore
1: the structural engineering of ocean engineering, one might say. It
0: covers everything from sort of structural, mechanical, fluid dynamics and, and much, much more really. I guess where that deviates from naval architecture is the focus for naval architects is is primarily on the design and construction of vessels, how vessels will handle certain wave conditions or loading conditions, whereas we're not really uh, focused on the things that move through the water, more things that are moored out out to sea or connected to the seabed.
1: My impression was that Uni Tasmania was mostly focused on boats and things. Maybe that's because of the uh, testing tanks and things, but you're saying it's also focused on a lot of structural elements of operating yeah. with the sea.
0: Indeed, yeah.
1: I was going to ask whether ocean engineers are immune to getting seasick, but it doesn't seem like you're doing boats, so that question probably doesn't apply.
0: I do spend a lot of time on boats, though. Definitely not. I'm a great candidate for what not to do when you get to sea, and that's get seasick. So back in my teenage years, I I thought I was immune to getting seasick growing up on and around the water, but when I found myself sitting on the back of a dive boat in my late teens, I, uh, I learned the cruel reality of seasickness, although it hasn't slowed me down, that's for sure.
1: How would you describe your role as an engineer now differently from what you thought engineers did when you were at school? Has your uh, attitude or understanding of engineering changed dramatically?
0: It has. I guess it's hard to capture what you thought back then, but I I guess in the back of my mind, it was me sitting in a design office in front of a drafting board sort of thing with a a bunch of other like-minded associates sort of all tackling one big problem and then going out to site with a clipboard and and sort of seeing out whatever you were sitting in the office designing. Compare that to what I do day to day now and it's polarisingly different.
1: So is engineering better now that you're in amongst it than what you thought it would be and and why?
0: A hundred times better, that's for sure. It's a real challenge, but the payoff is something very hard to explain and incredibly uh, rewarding.
1: What's a typical day like? I mean, when you're talking about the engineering that you're doing, what kind of engineering or what kind of projects are you actually working on now?
0: I sat down and wrote a couple of notes for today and uh, it's, it's such a hard thing to actually capture. You look at what I do day to day, or month to month, or year to year, and it's so dynamic. I guess just to give you a bit of a, a bit of an example, it's it's everything from working out design modifications on a variable ballast system for our vehicle to driving around surface vessels to servicing hydroplane actuators, working on the back deck of an icebreaker, conducting on-the-fly fiberglass repairs in remote field locations, to being on online with uh, acoustics engineers in the US trying to debug instrumentation and see why you're not getting the results that you uh, really require.
1: You're working at Maritime College on AUVs and AUVs, so what's the difference between the two from a student's perspective?
0: The primary difference is one comes with strings attached. In essence, an, an AUV is very similar to an ROV, but one has direct control, the other doesn't. As soon as an autonomous underwater vehicle leaves the service, it's on its own. There's relative communications or tracking, but realistically it's on its own making decisions in how to act if it encounters obstacles or how to react in an emergency situation and really just how to carry out what you've asked it to do. An ROV, on the other hand, has a line going to the surface and and you're there controlling it with a remote control.
1: Say so you're physically driving it and telling it what to do every minute of the day. It's not making decisions for itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I guess it, it can have elements of autonomy. So more like a ship's autopilot or something. It can maintain a, a steady course or something, but a lot of it's down to uh, manipulation and an actual human input.
1: Where would you use the different devices? Is there a particular place and time that you'd use one over the other? Probably
0: more typically if you're trying to inspect something that you've recognised, there's a problem. So for instance, if you have a leaking pipeline, if you've got a leak somewhere along you might use an AUV to survey the pipeline or a ship, try and identify areas where you might see a problem. Then you might use an ROV to go down and and poke and prod it with its manipulator arm and have a really good look around it with a camera, and uh, tighten a nut and bolt that might have come loose, or or do some welding, or and then send a diver down potentially. So there's there's grey areas between them all, especially with with a lot of the developments that are coming on with AUVs at the moment. But in essence, that's a, that's your distinction.
1: With an AUV, you basically have got a program it and it goes off and does what it's going to do and you really, it's quite difficult to communicate with them under seas now over, over any distance. But ROV, you communicate continuously. Yeah, correct. Do you do a lot of work in the communications area as well or do you try and improve that communication with AUVs or you just assume that you can't do that?
0: It's very tricky because you, you can get longer and longer range communications with an AUV but it's really the medium in which you're working which is water which is the the giant stumbling block you have to reduce the frequency and increase the power output to get a longer range but with that comes lot slower transmissions and you end up with very small packets of information it's an interesting one because as you might be aware uh, a lot of the sensors that an AUV will use to either map or to collect water velocity measurements or, or things like that are all acoustic signals. And you're also trying to communicate with acoustics. And there's certain instances where if you're trying to communicate from a ship to an AUV you're using a, a low frequency, high amplitude signal, you'll end up essentially just with big blank spots in your data. Because it's just like someone you trying to listen to or or look at something, and then someone's shining a light in your eyes, sort of thing. So it it's a sort of a blinding s- signal sometimes. So it's it's one of those things that that is being developed, uh, not so much by us, but it's just something you sort of have to work with and work around.
1: So what what depths are UVs, Thuvys, that you're working with, operating at?
0: Our large AUV that we we run is depth rated to five thousand meters. So it can go five kilometers under the sea. To date, we've probably run that up to about thirteen or fourteen hundred meters, which uh it's it's quite hard to fathom if you're trying to think about it and our vehicle's not even half ocean depth rated. So you look at the Mariana's Trench and it's 11 kilometres deep and it's it's so hard, it's mind boggling how deep that is and how much pressure exists at that sort of depth.
1: I would imagine that trying to make any communication would be more and more difficult as you get temperature barriers and things as well. Do they impact on the communication?
0: Indeed, yeah, and especially when you end up with uh, thermoclines, which is a, a change in water density, uh, primarily salt-driven, it's incredibly hard. As with any signal going between two different mediums, you will get some sort of refraction or reflection or distortion of the signal.
1: Is there more salt at the bottom of the ocean or at the top of the ocean? What it really change?
0: depends where you are. That's a very much a loaded question. Uh, and then you get down to Antarctica and everything flips on its head.
1: Because there's a lot of fresh water down there?
0: You just have so many processes sort of acting and you've just got super cooling of water and density waterfalls and all sorts of crazy things, and you end up with freshwater plumes around melting ice or big density plumes around forming ice, it's a wild place to try and operate an AUV, that's for
1: sure. Since you're saying the sea's nearly as complex as trying to fly an aeroplane through a hurricane, it's quite complex trying to determine what things are happening.
0: Yeah, indeed.
1: What are the kinds of research and development that's going on in your department at the Maritime College? Some of the
0: stuff has been science-based and some of it engineering-based. I mean, just flicking back through the last 12 months, we worked very closely with some scientists in Hobart to help design and develop and integrate a trace metal clean water sampler into our AUV, which was then ultimately used in the Antarctic Mission, which preceded all that work. We also tested and designed and manufactured a a large ship-based launch and recovery system for our vehicle as well, so a big sort of sled based launch system that allows the AUV to slide off the back of a ship in a controlled manner, of course.
1: What's the basis for the science?
0: That's really not my bread and butter, but it's all about trying to collect water samples that haven't been contaminated by coming in contact with a large steel ship ultimately, and that, that will then paint a picture for... Uh, biochemists and, and scientists that are specialised in that domain to learn more about the processes happening in the Antarctic.
1: So this ocean engineering sounds like a pretty cool job.
0: It, it really depends what, what field you end up. This is a, this is quite a dynamic one, this one.
1: So how would you describe engineering? If you're going to talk to a student and say, this is what engineering is all about, how would you define it?
0: it essentially boils back to just problem solving. That's really what it boils down to, but it's just using a bunch of knowledge and tools and out-of-the-box thinking to to come up with smart and efficient and safe design solutions for the problems that we come across. A bit of a tricky one to sort of to boil back down to that, but yeah, it's, it's very mentally stimulating work.
1: So your recommendation to students would be that it's a great job?
0: Oh, 100%, yeah. That's, that's not just speaking from me, that's speaking from a bunch of colleagues, be it high school or university colleagues that have gone forth and done engineering careers, it's everything from designing ships to surveying new roads and, and everything in between. It's just a, a great career.
1: So what's it like studying at the Uni of Tasmania? What's the fantastic environment? Because it's really is a different place to most other universities.
0: It, it really is. The sort of nicheness of it, maybe that's not the right word, but maybe the sort of the smaller nature of the the university and the course really pertain to the, the hands-on experience you get because you're not sitting in a class of thousands of people, you're, you're sitting in a class of maybe a 100 people and you really get to know the lecturers and you really get hands-on experience when you do do practical work and you do really get 100% engaged and involved in learning. It's so beneficial having all these research facilities at your fingertips to to be able to sort of work with and gain knowledge from and and come and sort of get involved and go out to sea and experience things and understand that engineering is a lot more than what you can sort of conceptualise from behind a desk. You really need to get out and get your fingernails dirty sort of thing and, and understand how things are going to work in the real world, especially I think it's particularly relevant in the maritime field because the ocean is a very sort of harsh beast when it comes to trying to put something in the water or around the water. It makes it far greater, far more difficult to do than anything else.
1: What sort of other career options have now become exposed to you that you never knew existed when you were at school?
0: Oh, look, I think it was a lot to do with the research domain. I guess going into this sort of field, I'd, I'd initially sort of conceptualised that the career path or the my sort of career path was just going to flow straight into an industry career. And I think the the crossover that you get with a, a bunch of these institutes in, in Tasmania like UTAS and IMAS and CSIRO all being research-focused Sort of hubs for specifically Antarctic and maritime research. It's really open my eyes to how much sort of fun and how many possibilities there are in research and design and development, and not in a commercial sense.
1: So, have you had an opportunity to go the, to the Antarctic?
0: Just got back in March this year from my third stint down south. I've been there three times in the in the five years in this job that I've uh, had so far.
1: Working on on land or on ships?
0: Both. Two of the stints were on a ship, the first one for seven weeks, the, the second one for bang on two months, and then another one was three and a half months on the land itself.
1: So once you get on there, are you isolated during wintertime or what's it like to get in and out and, and to live in those kinds of environments?
0: Once you get there and sort of settle in, it's incredibly remote and, but yet, incredibly connected. I mean, we were there over summer, so there was sort of flights coming in and out and the ship had access, but I can't imagine what it would be like over winter when you're down there in complete darkness. It was a a very sort of surreal experience that you you really can't properly explain.
1: Is it somewhere you'd, you'd recommend people to go? I mean, it's always been on my bucket list, so... I think it would be amazing. Oh, it's,
0: it's, yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal place. It's beauty and vastness is is phenomenal and it's a, a very special place to get to work, that's for sure. You sort of have to pinch yourself after a while. After after a few months down there, it becomes somewhat normal and then you, you sort of get a phone call from back home or something with someone saying, oh, it's 35 degrees today and I am stuck in a traffic jam and you're going, oh, yeah, I just look outside and we've got penguins walking by the window sort of thing, so it's amazing, yeah, phenomenal.
1: So have you seen any of the work that the substitute schools kids are doing? I'm not sure how many have been down in Tasmania at all.
0: I haven't seen any firsthand, but I have read, read a bunch up on it. I have seen some of their past year's work, that's for sure. And as you know, I'm doing a little bit of work with uh, your tech advisor at the moment with um, some some stuff in the background. So um, I'm quite keen to see how that all goes and what the kids come up with this year.
1: The new submarine that everyone's been helping with is just about to go on the water tomorrow. So, Oh, yeah. Wow. Hopefully it's going to work. I remember when we did started substance schools, we sh- maybe I shouldn't tell stories out of school, but six young engineers from a s c had designed the first one. It took a lot of effort to, because I think they uh, they learned so much because they again hadn't designed a whole submarine. they'd all been engineers from designing little parts and then they come together and have to make the whole thing work and it was a very difficult task for them
0: it's unbelievably hard when you sort of when you boil it down there there isn't much to it in a way but it's just marrying everything together and as a few people have said in past times it's keeping the water out that's one of the big challenges
1: when you add the science pressures and everything else the design environment completely changes and it's quite difficult to work with
0: Completely, and and spending all that time on, on certain submarines, especially as I've come to realise, and then sending it off on, on a voyage under a sheet of ice where, you know, if it doesn't come back, there's a 100% chance you're not going to get it back. It's the ultimate sort of engineering thing because you can't just press press pause or whatever and go in and just double check something because once it's gone, it's gone. It really sort of makes you very focus orientated on uh, making sure that you do absolutely everything you can to get it back.
1: So if you were talking to students and they were half interested in following um, their dreams into undersea exploration, wh- what would you advise them on how to do it or how to think about it or how to approach the problem of moving into that as a career?
0: Look, I think you can do it via a multitude of different ways, but I wouldn't. Uh, I'd highly recommend getting online and doing some digging. Just doing some of the reading and uh, looking out for some of the documentaries from some of the early explorers that have done subsea explorations or pioneers of of that sort of domain is one way to really sort of just get your teeth into it and get immersed in how they started off. But then, if you can get involved in a subson schools team or cross paths with AMC open days or whatever you can really. There's a great deal of resources online to sort of wet your taste buds. Ultimately it's, it's trying to find a way to study something that you love and that you can get your teeth into and you can really thoroughly enjoy.
1: It sounds like passion is a big part of what you're what you do every day, you're buried in amongst something that you really enjoy. Oh
0: 100% yeah and I think that was that's what made my university course so easy in a sense. It was incredibly an incredibly sort of challenging course but just sort of what I was working with and what everything was focused around just made it that much more attainable because it was interesting I loved what I was doing and I sort of, I had a passion for it and, and that makes learning for me 100% easier.
1: Are you're originally from Tasmania?
0: No, I grew up in northern New South Wales, grew up in a small coastal town of 5,000 people and my careers advisor sort of came to me one day and said, hey, I'm at AMC. So uh, next minute I knew I was doing a little bit of research and on a flight down to Launceston to, um, to suss it out in person. And I sort of, I didn't think twice about moving halfway across the country or relocating my life down here. I sort of got caught a glimpse of what it could be and just went for it.
1: It's a lovely place to live, Tasmania.
0: Oh, yeah, thoroughly enjoy it down here. It's a very picturesque and a very livable city.
1: And not too many traffic lights and traffic jams, apart from four o'clock in the afternoon, I think, in Launceston. It's
0: a very small window to avoid, that's for sure.
1: So if you were going to give some students' advice on, on engineering and careers and where you go, what, what would you say to them? How would you advise them to turn around and choose a career and determine what they're going to do in life?
0: I guess it's... It's all about trying to find what you love doing for, for a month, for a week, for years to come, sort of thing. And and what what really sort of is somewhat effortless to sort of think about. I definitely think it it can't be forced. I'm a great advocate for sort of taking a taking a breather at the end of year 12 and just letting letting the dust settle, as I see it. And just just making sure that you you sort of not diving into something too quickly, but also not not sort of loitering too much either. Just follow up on on your queries and uh, sort of thinking outside the box go why do I why do I like doing that so much is it because I'm interested in the way it works or like try and boil down your passions in your current life and and work out what really drives you to doing what you do every day do you like mountain biking because you like being outside or is it because you're extremely interested in how all the suspension components work and how you make a like a lighter bike or something I don't know it's all about sort of chasing your interests I think
1: Thank you for your time. I think there's a lot of stuff Then We might organise to have another chat again soon.
0: Not a problem, Mike. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.